You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, it's Jean Chatsky. Happy holiday season and welcome to Her Money. I hope that you all are winding down your holiday shopping, maybe amping up your your celebrations and really just enjoying your friends and your family this season. I'm really excited about today's guest. He is one of my longtime go-to sources for things behavioral finance. Dr. Daniel Crosby, who is a psychologist, a behavioral finance expert, a New York Times bestselling author, has a new book out. It is called The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success. Daniel is joining us via Skype. Thank you for coming on the show. Where am I catching you? Hey, thanks for having me. You are finding me in Atlanta, Georgia, the greatest city on earth. Well, I I might disagree with you there. I am looking out my window to a beautiful day in New York City. It's nice and crisp, but no snow and the sun is shining. So so we can debate that later. Yes. When I think about behavioral finance, I sometimes define it as an entire science devoted to figuring out why it is that smart people do stupid things with money. What's your definition? So my definition is just trying to integrate uh, real people, real humans back into the equation. You know, uh, a lot of our financial and economic models were built on the assumption of perfectly rational, uh, fully informed uh, people making uh, agents, making financial decisions. So just trying to integrate the messiness and complexity of humanity back into the equation. What got you interested in this? So, you know, I'm the son of a son of a financial advisor. So I grew up sort of steeped in these things, started school as a psychologist, got about two to three years into a Ph.D. program in psychology, uh, clinical psychology, before I realized that I couldn't talk to sad people for a living. Um, I was I was just taking it home with me. It was too much for me. And I said, I love thinking about the reasons why people do the things they do. Um, but I need to think about it in a non-clinical context really just sort of combining that tradition in which I was steeped uh, just from a young age with my first love of psychology has been such a satisfying career move. I I think it's so fascinating because I catch myself doing irrational things or if not doing irrational things, at least thinking about doing irrational things. And I know what I'm supposed to do. And so if I find myself in this position all the time, human beings must just be at a loss, almost unable to help ourselves do it correctly. So there's there's a fascinating story about um, Markowitz, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on diversification and, and, you know, all these lofty mathematical concepts sort of proving out the power of diversification. And they they said, Professor, uh, how do you invest in? And he said, well, I do half stocks and half bonds, which, of course, flew right in the face of all his beautiful, elegant math about, you know, finding sort of the, the perfect portfolio for your risk tolerance. 
And again, like he's just all of us in a nutshell, right? Like we have these ideas and we, we know what we ought to do in some cases, but doing it's just so, so difficult. I, I remember having a conversation with John Bogle. I was interviewing him actually for a, a prior radio show that I did for the Oprah and Friends Network. And I said, so how often do you rebalance? And and John Bogle, who the, is the king of index funds and, and who has preached rebalancing for Ever said, oh, I never rebalance. And I, I just, I, my mouth just fell open because this is why we need systems and tools to help us do it right, at least in my estimation. You agree? Oh, I do. You know, in the book, I talk about rule RBI, rules based behavioral investing. And one of the reasons that I set this out. It's because even when we know the right things to do, we have very little access to all that good knowledge when we need it most. I mean, I cite research in the book that says we lose 13% of our IQ under stress. So even if you know all the right things to do, it's very hard to do it in that moment when you need it most. And it's particularly hard at times like now. So our listeners know we tape our shows um, a week or so in advance, sometimes a little bit more. We're talking to you on Wednesday, December 14th. And I, I woke up and I turned on my television to anchors talking about whether today was going to be the day that the Dow hit 20,000 and maybe even closed over 20,000. It's just been on a tear since the election. And that, in my mind, would cause more irrationality, more insanity, because the more the markets start to churn, the more people sort of feel like genius investors, even when they're not doing anything at all. So how do you handle times like this? Times like this, you know, this is one of the reasons that rules become so important. I mean, you know, like you said, it's we're knocking on the door of, of 20,000. We're also it's also Fed decision day. So it's a big day. Lots of worrying uh, sort of uh, unnecessarily. So, you know, I talked before about the need for rules. And this year is as good a case in point as you've ever seen. Um, because you look, we, we started off the year that was the worst start to a year in financial history. And then right now we're sitting it up about 11, uh, 11% for the year. And the two events that have gotten us way up this year have been Brexit and the, uh, the, you know, the surprising election result in the U.S. Now, very few people saw either of those things coming to pass. And I think basically no one both thought that they would happen and that they would be positive for the market. I mean, in the immediate aftermath of Trump's victory, the market that was down 8% in the pre-market, and then we've been straight up like a rocket ever since. And so this is why, uh, you know, I talk about the, the futility of forecasting in the book and give some statistics about just how bad uh, Wall Street prognosticators are. This is why we have to have a system and we have to have an advisor to sort of hold our hands through through times like this. Because, frankly, we're just not equipped to do these things well ourselves. You have in the book, and in addition to your rules-based investing, you have 10 commandments of investor behavior. Forecasting is for weathermen is one of them. But let's talk about some of the others and why it's important to adhere to these. You say you control what matters most. What do you mean? I was very intentional about uh, creating that as the first chapter because I wanted to empower people right out of the gate. You know, like you, I talk to people all the time 
who are confused and overwhelmed by the prospect of having to invest, you know, to, to reach their retirement and other goals. And so I cite research in that first chapter that says, you know, a far better predictor of whether or not you reach your financial goals. It's not what Janet Yellen does. It's not who's the president. It's not what foreign powers do. The best predictor is if you are able to do uh, things like sticking to your knitting, keeping a long-term focus, diversifying, managing costs, things like this. Um, and I share research from Dalbar and others that shows that historically over the last 30 years, uh, the average investor has uh, given up about half of what the market has offered you um, just because of poor investment decisions and poor timing. And so really trying to empower people to say, look, it's easier than you think and you have more power over this process than you might realize. How about your savings rate? I mean, to me, that's always been one of the most important things that you can control. Oh, of course. Yeah, should have mentioned it. Absolutely. Um, you talk about commandment number two, you cannot do this alone, even with all the DIY tools on the market. Yeah. So chapter two, you cannot do this alone. Um, there are a ton of DIY tools on the market now, but I think that we still need an advisor. And I, in that chapter, I say you need a financial advisor, but probably not for the reason that you think. So in that chapter, I cite research from Vanguard, Investnet, Aon Hewitt, and Morningstar uh, that shows that people that work with a financial professional tend to do two to three percent better than those who who do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because they drill down on that outperformance and say, what are the causes of this outperformance? Uh, and it's not that financial advisors uh, give such great stock picking tips or even great asset allocation. That doesn't add a ton of value. They're actually just holding your hand, uh, keeping you invested in a 2008, 2009 type scenario, keeping you from making a handful of horrible decisions over your lifetime uh, that would dramatically uh, reduce your ability to, to reach your retirement goals. And so really, it's kind of counterintuitive because the research shows uh, that most people think that they're getting sort of a junior Warren Buffett, like they're going to point me in the direction of great sort of hot stock tips. Um, but in fact, that's not the primary benefit added by financial advisors. The primary benefit's behavioral, and I don't think that most people realize that and take advantage of that appropriately. I, I want to talk about a couple of additional commandments, um, but first I want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments, and Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for, so visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Dr. Daniel Crosby, as well as a lot of information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. And that's true whether you're getting married or divorced or having a baby or starting a new career or retiring. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. If you're looking for another podcast, check out one of our favorites. It's called Reveal. It comes from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. 
Reveal has a team of investigative reporters constantly digging to expose problems that most people know nothing about. These reporters spend weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years getting to the bottom of a story. And along the way, they come across the most intriguing characters. Sometimes they're good guys, sometimes not so good. But by the end, they've revealed what's going on and who's to blame. So check it out. You can find Reveal on your local public radio station or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you download podcasts. We are happy to be talking with Dr. Daniel Crosby, behavioral psychologist. He's got a new book out, and we're we're talking about his Ten Commandments of Investor Behavior. I think it's a very relevant one. Number four, if you're excited, it's a bad idea. A lot of us are excited about the markets these days. Yeah, that's that's true. And it's probably a bad idea. You know, I'm of the, I'm sort of of the opinion that investing should be very boring. And I mean, most good investing is quite boring. It's quite tedious. It's uh, one of it's, my money rules. Boring oh, is better. Isn't? Boring oh, is great. better. Yeah. Great, great minds. Well, and you know, it's interesting too, because uh, I talk in that chapter about how emotion actually shapes our perception of risk. And so, you know, how happy or how sad you are uh, actually shapes how dangerous you, you view the markets to be. And so, again, uh, being excited, being greedy, being fearful, any of these extreme emotional states um, distort the way that we assess probability, the way that we weight risk. You can't do it in an emotion-free way. You know, it's interesting. There's studies done that show that people that have the emotional centers of their brain damaged can't even pick out a suit to wear in the morning, can't decide what kind of cereal to have. So every decision that we make is emotional. Uh, decisions about our uh, um, money are especially emotional. So there's never a way to strip emotion entirely out, uh, but we should avoid those emotional extremes. And, you know, I draw on the addiction literature. There's this acronym from 12-step programs called HALT, which says that you shouldn't make a decision if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I think you could say similar things about your investment life. Another money rule, don't shop angry. Ah, good. You know, because I think a lot of people think of anger as as an emotion that might shut you down, but the research shows that it makes you take additional risk, and and so you shouldn't shop when you're angry because you'll buy big things that you later regret, and you shouldn't invest when you're angry either. You mentioned risk. How should we think about risk? I mean, what's the right way to gauge? Everybody talks, myself included, about how you want an amount of risk that's appropriate for both your age and your tolerance. But how do we know where that is? Yeah, so I think the, you know, if you look at academics, the way that they define risk, they define it as volatility, sort of the up and down of the stock market. And I reject that notion, right? I think of risk behaviorally. And so the first thing that you have to do when you think about risk is you have to define your goals. Because something can't be risky in isolation. That's part of why I reject that sort of academic definition of risk. Something's risky to you in particular because it has to do with you meeting or not meeting your your goals. So the first thing you have to do is really, really sit down and define those goals. And I also think that people need to understand that there's a strong behavioral element to risk. I think some of the biggest risks we face are not market risks. 
It's the risk that the, that you talked about earlier, like not having an adequate savings rate, or in fact not uh, investing aggressively enough uh, to meet our our targets. I think we err on the side of greater conservation than greater risk too often because people aren't saving enough, they're not investing aggressively enough. And so I think as a nation, we err towards safety and not towards too great risk. So yeah, risk is behavioral and risk is personal. And it's different for women than it is for men. Can you explain that a little bit? There's so much fascinating uh, research on the differences between men and women as investors, and all, all of it points to women as being better investors. And I can I can speak to that uh, in detail if you'd like. Well, I think the crux of that is that once women make a decision, we're better at sticking with our knitting, right? I mean, the crux of the women being better investors argument is we just trade in and out a lot less frequently, and that way we spend a lot less on trading costs. Well, that's part of it. You know, the Barber and Odin study, I think, is the one that you're referring to, showed that, you know, men trade 45% more than women, single men outtrade single women by 67%. And this shows that because of this tendency to not stay put that men have, um, the women outperform the men by about one and a half percent a year, which is dramatic over over a lifetime. Uh, but there's also reason to think that, uh, you know, women are sort of biopsychosocially better cut out for this than men. John Coates showed that there's some biological advantages that women have by just having lower levels of testosterone, which leads men to make bad decisions. Uh, Meredith Jones has shown that uh, women weight probabilities more accurately than men uh, because of psychology. And I think even the way that women are socialized, which is certainly a mixed bag, but when it comes to investing, there's some good stuff to being socialized towards being uh, you know, having less ego, maybe being a little more measured, uh, at least in investing, that's a very positive thing. So in terms of women's reluctance to get in the game to begin with, at least in a, a big enough way, knowing all of those advantages that we have, what's your advice for getting around it? You know, I think for men and women alike, we need to do a lot to make investing more personal. I think it needs to be more personal, more behavioral, and more values-based. And I think that as we can move in that direction, I think uh, women, and I also think people who are just not that interested in investing uh, of all of all genders, will become more interested. You know, I talk about research in the book uh, that shows that talked about working with low-income savers, trying to get them to put aside enough for a rainy day. Mm-hmm. They tried rewards. They tried punishments. And it was only after they primed them with, uh, in this case, a picture of their children before they made a financial decision that they were really able to start saving. They upped that saving by almost 250 percent. It's a little like the research that had people looking at older images of themselves. Yes, 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 yes. Right. Because you've connected it to yourself. Right. It's not this big, scary abstraction. It's something that you're going to have to deal with. And the research that you're talking about that aged people's faces sort of said, look, you, you're going to get old one day um, and you're going to have the same wants and wishes that you do today. And you've got to set aside for that rainy day. So connecting it back is going to help uh, people of all stripes, I think. Well, this is I could talk to you all day, as my producers clearly know. Um, we're going to have to wrap things up here, but I'd love you to come back. And I want to have an entire discussion on values based investing and how that could 
inspire us to do more and do better. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. Okay. Dr. Daniel Crosby, the new book is called The Laws of Wealth, Psychology, and the Secret to Investing Success. Where can we find you? Uh, all over the place. Amazon's the easiest place to find the book. You can find me online at Daniel Crosby on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for being here and happy holidays. My pleasure. Thank you. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kelly, we're counting down. Hi, Jean. Yes, I am in the Christmas spirit. You are. Mm -hmm. I'm glad. I'm mm -hmm. glad. You know, conversations like the one we just had always sort of get me thinking about whether what I bought are the right things to have purchased. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of psychology that goes into all of those decisions, whether you're buying for yourself or buying for somebody else. But it helps me to remember that when you're buying for somebody else, those are the purchases that make you the happiest. They really are. But do you ever struggle with going out with the best intentions to shop for others, but then also seeing something that would make you really happy too? One for me, one for you. Yeah, yeah I do that all the time. And like, <laughs> so like year after year, it shows like self-gifting continues to increase like year after year. I, I know. and But I always keep my self-gifts in the bag with the receipt for a little while. Mm. And, and I find that sometimes I return my self-gifts. Sometimes I think, you know, I really didn't need to buy that for me. I didn't need a little present that day. And sometimes I just take them back. That's a good idea. Yeah. I should so, start doing that. Well, it depends what you're <laughs> buying. You'll show me. We'll weigh in. What do we That's have? Good. Our first question is from at Andy Nifong on Twitter. And I apologize if I didn't pronounce that correctly. I'm looking at HSA right now due to plan change. Any advice on comparing HSA plan with PPO plan to determine the best choice? Sure. And it's a really, really good question because more and more employers are adding HSA um, HSA eligible insurance plans to their menu. So let's just back up a second and, and talk about the fact that what we're dealing with here is a high deductible health insurance plan that gives you the option to open a health savings account that you can put money into. Sometimes your employer will put some money in as well, and then you use that money to pay for your health care expenses. This year, next year, the money is portable. It can go with you from job to job. And even if you start working for yourself, it is yours to keep. It's not like flexible spending account money. But when you're making the choice between an HSA and a PPO, it's not just a matter of cost. Many people get stuck on the deductible because the deductible is the biggest amount of money. But when you're weighing the different costs, you want to try to get a clear sense of what this plan will cost you throughout the year, not just in deductibles, but in premiums, in co-payments. So you got to look at how often you went to the doctors last year, how much money you spent on prescription drugs last year. Try to get an all-in sort of figure. And then in a very, very general sense, PPOs are better for people who think that they will be going to the doctor more often. And HSA plans are better for people who are a little younger, a little healthier, a little less likely to use medical care. Great. Thank you. And thank you for your question. We have a question from Sherry. She sent us an email. I am in deep debt and my salary is not keeping up. I don't want to declare bankruptcy. I hear ads for credit relief, but I'm skeptical. Are there reputable credit counseling services you would recommend that can assist me in reducing monthly payments? Um, Sherry, let me just say, look, I know what this feels like. And this feels like a huge weight on your head. So it's great 
that you want to take action. It's terrific that you want to avoid bankruptcy. And yeah, there are reputable credit counselors out there, and that is exactly what I would recommend you look into. Start at the website of the National Foundation of Credit Counselors. All of their counselors are certified. They will put you through a substantial intake interview where essentially they take a look at what's going on in your life. And about a third of the time, they'll look at this and they'll say, oh, you can just do this yourself. And they'll give you some to-do steps to send you on your way. A third of the time, they'll say, oh, you're too far gone. You really do need to look into bankruptcy. And a third of the time, they'll say, we can help you. And and the way that they help you is by putting you on a debt management program that reduces the interest rates that you pay to your creditors to around 6%. At that point, you give up using your credit cards. And instead, every single month, you send them a check. They pay your bills. And typically, three, four, five years down the road, you emerge from the process debt-free. That's how it works. A lot of people find that they're not able to stick with it the whole way through, but it is a very good, solid process that has worked for a lot of people. And so nfcc.org is the website. That's where I would send you. And good luck. Please let us know how it goes. Thanks, Sherry. And thanks, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. And please send us your questions. Where do we do this? Twitter, Facebook, jeanchatsky.com, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Terrific. And uh, I will talk to you again soon. I know we're right before the holidays, and it's crunch time for many of us. But on this week's Thrive segment, I want to take just a couple of minutes and think ahead to a very important day in April. Yes, tax day. Before you groan, I am bringing it up for a very good reason. I want to save you some time. I want to save you some money. And I want to make sure that you get as big a refund as possible. A little year-end tax planning can go a very long way toward lowering your bill. So here are just a few things to keep in mind. Number one, grab all the deductions that you can. This is particularly important for people who itemize. You want to get in as many deductions as you can. So I'm talking about things like giving to charity, making sure that you get receipts for all charitable contributions, even those things that you give to the Salvation Army, that you give to Goodwill. You want to try to get receipts if possible. Also, pay any medical bills early if you're on the verge of meeting the threshold that makes them deductible. And anything else that's on your list, you want to squeak it in under the wire before the end of the year. Second on the list, max out your contributions to tax-advantaged savings accounts for retirement and for other goals. You have until tax day next year to make your IRA and Roth contributions, but others have to be taken care of before year-end. So if you've still got money that you could contribute to your 401k, talk to your benefits department about the best way to do that. If you have money that you could contribute to health savings accounts, to 529 college savings accounts, in order to grab an additional tax deduction, now is the time to do that. 
Number three, sell your losers. Look at your portfolio. Look for any stocks that aren't likely to recover that you want to unload. It makes sense to do this before the end of the year because losing stocks offset winners and the capital gains that come along with them, along with up to $3,000 of ordinary income. And finally, check your withholding. Both a big refund and a big bill are signs that your withholding may be off. Or if you've had a major life change this year, maybe you had a baby, maybe you got married. Married, maybe you got divorced, it's worth checking again. Quick recap, as the year winds down, take a little bit of time to prep for tax season by grabbing any remaining deductions, maxing out your tax-deferred accounts, getting rid of the losers in your portfolio, and double-checking your withholding to make sure it makes sense for who you are today. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks, as always, to our team here at CDM Studios. A big thank you to our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. Thanks, too, to Dr. Daniel Crosby, my guest. He'll be back soon because I could just talk to him all day. And if you tune in next time, you'll hear a great conversation with personal finance guru, Liz Weston. We're looking forward to that. Happy holidays to all of you and a very, very happy new year. We'll see you soon.